First Kings, chapter 19, verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What are you doing here, Elijah? This is one of the most important questions in the whole of the Bible. And let me give you a little bit of context for why it's being asked. A few days before God asked this a question, Elijah is at the center of a spectacle. If you remember, he prays down fire on the altar, rain on the city, and labors in prayer on the mountain in between. He was and is our model for midday prayer. But then just a chapter later, the same prophet is now hiding, afraid, and borderline suicidal. He's traveled 80 miles on foot with nothing but the clothes on his back. He lies down somewhere in the wilderness and says, God, I've had enough. This journey, it's too much for me. So Elijah's standing there in the wilderness at the mouth of this cave, alone and afraid, when God poses a question, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's a question that God asks all of us. If you journey with Jesus, this is a situation that you will find yourself in, probably a number of times. In your relationship with God, you will get stuck, you will lose your place, you will forget. And when you do, you will find God asking you a similar question. What are you doing here, Ben? What are you doing here, Deidre? What are you doing here, Joy? What are you doing here, Akeem? How did you get where you are today, and how does that inform where you might go next? That is the big question for today. But if we're going to see that question, not just in Elijah's story, but in our own stories, then I've got to take you to another moment. It was mid-December 2020. I was riding out the pandemic in the city that had become the global epicenter. A massive naval ship was docked in the Hudson for hospital overflow. There was another outdoor makeshift hospital and tents in one of our city parks. There was a line stretching blocks down the street just to get into the grocery store. New York City felt apocalyptic. And I'm trying to raise a couple little boys, just two and four years old, in an apartment that's less than a thousand square feet, in a city that has no such thing as backyards, and whose playgrounds have all been closed for health and safety precautions. Mid-December 2020 meant all of that for me. 
And it also meant it was Christmas time in New York. And there's magic in the air when it's Christmas time in New York. So I planned a little excursion with my kids to go ice skating in Central Park, which had just reopened. The very ice rink where Macaulay Culkin once outsmarted Marvin Harry, the talk boy in hand. So, so I hype it to Hank and Simon all week. We're going on Saturday morning. Friday night, a blizzard hits the city. But I just thought, let's just power through. I mean, Central Park's the bougiest place in New York City. It's touristy. There's a 100% chance of been salting this thing through the night. So we parked three or four blocks away. I had Hank's bike and Simon's scooter in the trunk of the car. I pulled them out of the car, and we head to the sidewalk. We get to the entrance of the park. They have not been salting this thing all night. It is full blizzard mode in there. It's less like walking through the park and more like a scene from The Revenant, you know, where you're trying. <laughs> the ice rink is a half mile in from the park entrance where we roll up to. It takes 90 minutes for us to travel that half mile. Hank decided just to ride his bike there even though it was icy. He fell four times, the thing just coming out from under him. Simon, when we got to the entrance to the park, just began weeping at the sight of it. And so I've got him under one arm, I've got his, his scooter in the other one, and, and I fall completely on my back uh, twice, just making my way there. Luckily, only I was injured in the process of all of this. So, so we're making our way all the way to this ice rink. By the time we get there, the parking meter that I'd paid has already expired. We're past Simon's nap time. I haven't given them lunch at all, and it's nearly 3 p.m., and we arrive, and the announcement comes over the speaker, it's Zamboni time. So they're shutting this thing down for the next half hour so that like truck thing can smooth over the ice. So we're sitting outside at 20 degree weather waiting for them to open up this ice rink again. We rent skates and Hank's like right there at the gate, you know, waiting, first one in line, waiting for them to open. Uh, I'm standing with Simon. Me and Hank both have rented skates on. Simon doesn't, he's just in his shoes. He's two. Walking is like ice skating for him at this moment <laughs> in his life. So I'm thinking probably not the best idea to throw him on the ice, right? So, so they, they open up after a half hour and Hank starts shimmying around the side the way you do when you're, it's his first time ice skating, trying to figure out how this works. And, and I take Simon out and I'm just holding his hands as he's between uh, my knees and immediately the referee skates over and he's like, sir, so sorry, can't be on the ice without skates. I'm like, yeah, he's too. And my other son's right there. You don't even rent skates in his size. Is it really gonna mess up? He's like, yeah, I'm so sorry. You can't be in the ice without skates. And I was like, okay. And so I pick him up and hold him on my arm and I'm just about to skate off. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. you can't ice skate holding a child under your arm. <laughs> and I was like, that's actually a really great policy. This was a wildly dangerous choice I was about to make. Thank you. Thank you for intervening there. So the whole time I'm having this conversation though, Hank is shimmying further around the ice rink because he doesn't see me get stopped. And so then I see him way out in the distance and I gotta figure out what to do. So I start yelling, Hank, Hank, but he can't hear me because they're blaring Mariah Carey's Christmas album as loud as you can possibly imagine. He can't hear anything I'm saying. So at this point, Hank slips and falls and he's laying in the middle of the Central Park ice rink, which is packed, sprawling around and can't figure out how to get back up. And so he's just screaming, Dad, Dad. And I'm standing there holding my other son, not allowed to go further. I've been shut down by the referee who's still standing right in front of me, not sure what to do or how to intervene in this situation when a middle-aged woman who I've never met before in my life right behind me says, excuse me, sir, um, if you want, I'll hold your, your son while you go skate with your other son. 
And I know this is a bad idea, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm in New York City at the height of a global pandemic and a stranger wants to press her cheek against my son's cheek. I mean, best case scenario, we violated every CDC guideline, right? And that's best case scenario. I mean, I'm aware that this whole thing looks like the opening scene from a Liam Neeson film right now. And so I'm looking at Hank, and I'm looking at her, and I'm looking at Hank, and I'm looking at her, and then I just hand him over. <laughs> and I skate out to Hank, and I, I pick him up, and it's important for you to know now, as I'm skating out to the rescue, that I've only ever been ice skating twice in my life before this adventure, both of which were over 15 years prior to this day. And so I get out there and I help him up and then uh, we start shimmying around. By the grace of God, I'm able to balance while holding both of his hands because this guy, his feet are all over the place. At no point is he able to rest any of his weight, even in a standing position. But we kind of move around at the whole ice rink and, and we round the corner and we come back to Julie, the middle-aged woman holding my son. And, and Hank goes, Dad, did you see me? I, I skated, and I was like, you did it, man. That was so awesome. And then, uh, and then he says, can't we go more? And she's like, go for it. <laughs> and so, so we keep going, and I will never forget this moment as we round the corner of, of the ice skating rink, because at this point in time, not only was I doing something wildly dangerous and ill-advised as a parent, but Simon is more than a little bit attached to mom and dad. I mean, most of his life has been in lockdown. So cut us some slack. He doesn't like strangers. And so we come rounding the corner. Hank is laughing hysterically. He's having so much fun. Simon is waving to me from Julie's arms as he's watching us go. And there's tears streaming down my cheeks. And I'm just praying under my breath. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. As Mariah serenades us all. <laughs> and it's because this moment was holy. Uh, right? I, uh, I had this moment of receiving deeply from God because my son, who, who has been forced to be indoors when it's or for, forced to not be able to go anywhere indoors and it's freezing outside. He's not seen his friends in months because of global reasons he doesn't understand. And here he is having a moment of escape, having the time of his life. Everything I had planned fell apart. And then God's giving me this moment with one of my children. And so I'm just praying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And the reason I tell that story is because it was a moment of receiving deeply from God that does not fit into what we typically call a spiritual discipline or spiritual practice, right? There was a moment of receiving from God that we could no way categorize into something like a quiet time or devotions or whatever your preferred terminology is for reading scripture and praying to God. It was a moment where God met me unexpectedly in the course of my ordinary life. Now hold that thought. We're in this teaching series titled A House of Prayer for All Nations. Currently, we're zeroed in on reclaiming the ancient prayer rhythm common to the early church forgotten in our time. So the Bridgetown Daily Prayer Rhythm is in the morning, pray the Lord's Prayer. We heard from Pete Gregg on that last week. At midday, pray for the lost. That was a couple weeks ago. And up for today is in the evening, pray gratitude. 
And I am so excited in particular to introduce you to this teaching and practice because it is by praying gratitude that we learn to perceive the presence of God in the unexpected and ordinary places in our lives. It is by the simple habit of praying gratitude in the evening that we learn to see through the eyes of the kingdom which is always in our midst. That's where we're going, but that whole journey starts with this question. What are you doing here, Elijah? So back to that lonely, exhausted prophet in hiding. Gratitude begins when I recognize God in my past. Look back with me now at our teaching text. I'm going to read in 1 Kings 19 exactly where we just read from. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and they're trying to kill me too. Now, everything Elijah says in response to God's question is absolutely true. Everything except, I'm the only one left. That part's not true. And Elijah himself knows that it isn't true. If you just flipped back one page to the previous chapter, Obadiah, a friend, comes to Elijah to deliver a message. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, 50 in each, and supplied them each with food and water. So it's just before Elijah prays fire down on the altar, Obadiah comes to tell him, Elijah, times are tough right now, but you need to know this, you are not alone. There's a hundred others who are with you, who are fighting the very battle that you're fighting. But then on the other side of the breakthrough moment, Elijah is again afraid. And fear has to do with sight. Fear distorts our vision, it distorts reality. I'm the only one left. It's his felt experience, but it's not actually true. It's fear. Fear is distorting reality. So for Elijah, for the moment at least, fear is standing much taller than promise. Fear always either distorts reality or reveals reality, depending on if our fear is in the Lord or it's in any other source. See, when I'm afraid of failure, of being known, of being hurt if I open myself up again, of being alone, of suffering, when I'm afraid, the opposition, for a moment at least, stands taller than the promise. It's a distortion of reality, a deception, a warping of my sight. And when we believe lies internally, distorting our vision, we respond externally by grasping. And that's the whole story of Genesis 3, right? A serpent deceives Adam and Eve, they believe a lie internally. The God who you've only ever known and experienced as love is actually holding out on you. And so what do they do? They grasp, they reach for the fruit. They reach for, grasp for the fullest, freest kind of life apart from the God that they suddenly distrust. They reach for it by their own way, their own power under their own control. Original sin is grasping for what we can only receive. And there's an inner condition that then gets outwardly expressed as grasping and it's called entitlement commonly today. A biblical definition for entitlement might sound like trying to take from God what we believe he owes us. And there's a good desire at the core of entitlement. It's peace. Entitled people are aiming at peace. What will give me peace? What will calm the restlessness within me? What will satisfy my discontent, at least temporarily, grasping for peace that I can never take but can receive? I then turn God's gift into my right. 
God, you owe me a full, fulfilled life. And we tend to say those things to God while also defining what a full, fulfilled life looks like for me. And so entitled people are disappointed, and that disappointment manifests itself in this subtle anger. I thought if I followed Jesus, I'd have a happy marriage. I thought if I followed Jesus, I'd be sexually fulfilled. I thought if I followed Jesus, my dreams for his kingdom would have come to pass by now. I thought if I followed to Jesus, my family of origin wounds and the generational chains that run through my family tree would be broken. I thought if I followed Jesus, I'd get a community that knows me, supports me, and helps me to flourish. Without ever saying it out loud, I've lived with this assumption that God owes me, and what I think God owes me hasn't happened yet. I was looking for peace, But what I got was restlessness, discontentment, and maybe even a kind of subtle anger that says, they don't get it. All the rest of them have had their lives play out to some cute Christian little script, just as it's supposed to, but God hasn't made it that easy on me. Entitlement is trying to take from God what we believe he owes us, turning his gifts to us into our right, grasping for what we can only receive. Jesus takes direct aim at the subtle curse of entitlement in one of his most confusing teachings. This is Luke 17. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you've done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we, only have done our, we have only done our duty. And we don't like this little tale, right? We don't recognize Jesus in it, not right off anyway. I mean, isn't he the God that's revealing uh, the, um, the master of all as a suffering servant? Isn't he the one who in his kingdom, the last are first? But here he seems to be saying, you're the servant, I'm the master, feed me my supper first, then maybe I'll take care of you, and don't expect me to thank you for the dinner service either. That's what Jesus seems to be saying. What he's actually saying is he's drawing a distinction between what comes to us by right and what we can only receive as gift. You see, if all that we're given by the master is what Jesus describes here in this passage, then we're living by our rights as his creation. But Jesus, when he talks about his kingdom, says it works like this. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. We'll have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. See, Jesus is saying, I don't deal with you by rights. I deal with you by grace. And that's the thing that you cannot grasp for, but you can receive. We really do have a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. So the enemy's only trick is to get your wires crossed about what comes to you by right and what comes to you by grace or by gift. The enemy's only trick is entitlement. Gratitude is then the weapon that we carry to fight one of the most subtle and most dangerous thieves of the spiritual life, entitlement. And gratitude begins in hindsight. What's the most frequent command in the Bible? Does anyone know? Yeah, it's do not fear. It's not interesting. It's not pray or give or even love. It's do not fear. And the second, which follows closely behind it, the second most frequent command is remember. And I believe that the two are connected. Do not fear, but remember. Fear has gotten the best of Elijah. He's lost reality. He's lost the plot of his own story. So God poses a question, a question that invites him to remember. 
what are you doing here, Elijah? Remember the scenes of your life, the journey up to this point. Recall the one who has been with you at every step. Because in the long journey of the spiritual life, we tend to forget. We tend to again and again lose the plot of our own redemption stories. So remember, and as you do, the fear that's paralyzing you in this spot, it's going to lose its grip. Your distorted vision is going to be restored. You will see again. It's often said that hindsight is 2020, which I don't think is exactly true. But hindsight is where we tend to be able to see the move of God in our lives most clearest. When we look back into our past, we can perceive God's presence in a way that's easier than when we look forward or even look into the present moment. And that's why gratitude traditionally is prayed in the evening. Because gratitude is a way of recognizing all the gifts that the giver has offered to me in the slog or blur of the day that I've just lived. Gratitude is seeing the scenes of my day, the the emotional frenzy or the long, slow grind of today and seeing all the gifts that the giver has littered by his presence all along the way and saying thank you. It sets the promise of God right next to my fear. It fights every subtle lie with the weapon of gratitude. It restores my weary soul. It gives me the kind of peace that I cannot take but can receive. And what always starts with looking back then results in a truer way of looking forward. Gratitude practiced in hindsight results in gratitude practiced in foresight. So we recognize God in our past that we might secondly recognize God in my future. I once read an article about the singer Prince. Is there any Prince fans in here? All right, there's a few of you. I've never gotten it. I've tried and tried. I'll try again later this afternoon. Maybe I'll be as cool as you guys soon. But, but there's this one article where, where Prince was describing his creative process. And whenever he was in writing mode, long before he actually got into the studio to do any recording, just when he was trying to get the creative juices flowing, he would cut himself off from all other music. So every time he would write an album, he wouldn't listen to anything except the creativity that was emerging from himself. And that was the way that he guarded his own creativity, so that he was sure that he wasn't mimicking another artist, but but he was producing something entirely original. And I found that really interesting, because so many musicians listen to each other's work to gain inspiration. But for Prince, inspiration was gained by guarding himself and his imagination from all other work. He didn't draw inspiration from others. He listened intently to what was coming out of him to find inspiration. And praying gratitude is something like that. It's listening to your life, to borrow a phrase from the late, great Frederick Buechner. By tuning our ear to the sound of our own lives, the tune that we are living to can grow into a masterpiece. See, we tend to think unconsciously that spiritual maturity comes through listening to everyone else's life, right? Spiritual maturity is listening to Jesus and the apostles through the scripture, and it is that. And spiritual maturity is is listening to community, to the council of your Bridgetown community around the table, and then to the, the broader community of saints through pastors and writers and thinkers, through resources like books and sermons and podcasts. And it is that too. But in the modern West, we tend to consume lots and lots of information as the agent to our spiritual maturity. And that's good. But an equally valid and good agent of our own maturity is to listen to your life. 
Saint Ignatius, the founder of the Jesuit order, popularized a way of prayer called praying the examine, or the prayer of examine. Ignatius was a wealthy Spanish socialite who was injured as a soldier in battle, and he ends up bedridden in his parents' house for nine months of recovery. So he lays in bed for nine months with no prior theological training, no real spiritual interest. He lays in bed for nine months without Wi-Fi or Netflix or any kind of distraction. Can you imagine that? And it was there that he was forced into examining his own thoughts. And he began this practice of every evening just talking back with God about the day that had just passed. And the prayer of examine or the examination of conscience became the, the central spiritual discipline of the Ignatian tradition. Every tradition in church history has an unspoken central spiritual practice. Right In the early church, it was the daily prayer rhythm we've been talking about in recovering. In the broad tradition we're a part of today, it's typically the quiet time or some form of individualized scripture interaction and prayer. And in the Ignatian tradition, it's the prayer of examine. It's listening to my life in partnership with God at the end of the day. And the prayer of examine begins with gratitude. If you want to learn to perceive the presence of God, to walk with him day by day, start by noticing all the gifts that he's given you consciously and intentionally at the close of each day. Gratitude is the spiritual practice of making my whole life into a spiritual practice. Richard Foster defines spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices as a way of placing yourself where God can bless you. And that means that anything can be a spiritual practice, Bible reading and an aimless Saturday stroll, solitary prayer and laughter with friends, contemplative silence in the early morning and a glass of wine in the evening. Anything can be a spiritual practice, which begs the question, well then what makes something a spiritual practice? And it's just this, connecting the gift to the giver. And that tends to be easier with things like scripture and prayer and silence. So I would say that those are essential, kind of like the major food groups of a healthy spiritual diet. But when you pour a glass of wine on the Sabbath and you take that first sip and it reminds you of the feast that will never end when heaven and earth are rejoined as one, King Jesus returns, that's a spiritual practice. And when you walk slowly enough on a Saturday to notice the creator everywhere that you buzz past during the week, both in, in like the grime of the city and the beauty and serenity of the mountains, that's a spiritual practice. Gratitude's sole purpose is this, it's connecting the gift to the giver. It's all the gifts of our ordinary life get connected back to the giver. It's a way of reviewing my day, identifying the gifts and saying, I see you, I see you God. I see you here and here and here and here, and that only tells me that there's a thousand other places I haven't seen you. Thank you for walking with me through another day. Gratitude is the practice of discovering my whole life as a place of encounter with God, my whole life as a place where God can bless me, my whole life as a series of gifts connected back to the giver and a series of pains connected to the suffering servant. And it's precisely for that reason that Ronald Rollheiser so bluntly states, to be a saint is to be fueled by gratitude, nothing less. Gratitude is the basis of all holiness. The holiest person you know is the most grateful person you know. If you add up all the different feasts and celebrations that God commands ancient Israel to in the Old Testament law, it's about a third of the calendar year. They spent about a third of the calendar year feasting and celebrating. 
That means that when God led Israel out of Egypt into freedom and then gave them a new law and said, here's how you live under a different king and form a society that looks something like the kingdom of God, he he made joy that high of a priority that it consumed a third of the year. Uh, But what's the difference between the historic celebration practices that we read about on the pages of Scripture and your upcoming office Christmas party? It's connecting the gift to the giver. It's that written into those practices through the prayers that were prayed and the scriptures that were read, even the courses and the order the courses came in the feast was a connection of the gift back to God. Israel was a bunch of savants when it came to connecting the gift to the giver. And during the Jewish Passover, Israel traditionally sang a song called Dainu. And Dainu is a Hebrew phrase which means it would have been enough. I once heard another pastor translate it, thank you God for overdoing it. So Dainu prayer sounds like this, God, lunch today would have been enough, but you gave me the resources and means to choose what I wanted to eat out of a series of options. Thank you God for overdoing it. And you know, God, lunch today of my choice would have been enough, but you created a world full of culture and flavor and spice so so that lunch isn't just fuel, it is delicious. Thank you, God, for overdoing it. And lunch of my choice in a world full of culture and flavor and spice would have been enough, but you gave me a coworker to sit across from, to listen to, and be seen and heard by. Thank you, God, for overdoing it. That's Dainu. And that simple spiritual practice could take 30 seconds or 30 minutes, and it will totally transform you over the course of time. Because when we can recognize God in hindsight today, we begin to build a tomorrow future on his promise and not on my fear. But the very best part, like the choice fruit of the practice of gratitude, is that it trains me to recognize God in the present. Frank Laubach was an American intellectual turned missionary. He took a position on the island of Mindanao, which was so remote and dangerous that the closest place that his wife and child could live to him was 900 miles north in a safer part of the nation. And it was there in this remote island village uh, that he developed a life of quiet solitude that gave birth to this deep life of prayer. Prayer gave Laubach both a heart uh, of hunger for God and a heart broken with compassion for his new neighbors. He writes this, What right then have I or any other person to come here and change the name of these people from Muslim to Christian unless I lead them to a life more full of God than they have now? Clearly, clearly my job here is not to go to the town plaza and make proselytes. It is to live wrapped in God trembling to his thoughts, burning with his passion. And my loved one, that is the best gift you can give to your own town. So through prayer, Laubach felt this fresh call to the silent billion, meaning the estimated billion people who could neither read nor write during his lifetime. And he started a global literacy justice movement called Each One Teach One from that remote island in the Philippines, which then got into 100 nations and over 200 languages. He eventually became such a sage that governments would bring him in to solve national literacy crises in their nations. He, he helped give countless millions of people the gift of an education, and to this day, he's the only Christian missionary in the history of America to be memorialized on a postage stamp. That's what he's widely known for. But he also authored a series of letters 
during that first lonely, solitary year where he cultivated a deep life in prayer that was later published under the title Letters by a Modern Mystic. And it allows us to walk with him through that defining year, exploring the unlikely soil where this life lived in the presence of God actually developed. His first letter opens this way. I feel as I look back over the year that it would have been impossible to have held much more without breaking with sheer joy. It was the lonesomest year, in some ways the hardest year of my life, but the most gloriously full of voices from heaven. And as that defining year progresses and you read through those letters, eventually you realize that Labach's great realization, I want them to know my discovery that any minute can be paradise. Any place can be heaven. This is the discovery of the Apostle Paul praying from a Philippian jail cell. It's the discovery of John exiled on the island of Patmos. It's the discovery of Jesus alone on a mountain and in the throng of a crowd and even on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's the discovery of Elijah alone, depressed, and afraid in the wilderness that any place can be paradise and any minute can be a taste of heaven. That is the invitation of prayer. But when we stop or never start recognizing God in the course of our ordinary lives, uh, we cease to recognize God altogether. This, of course, was the condition of the priests of Jesus' time, right? Uh, they, they readily could recognize God on the pages of a sacred scroll or in a formal gathering in the temple, but they lost the ability to recognize him in the course of their normal lives. So they did not see God in the flesh as he sat at their dinner table and a sex worker washed his feet with her hair. Or as he celebrated when Levi the tax collector came into salvation at his house among his company. Or as some friends tore tiles off a roof to get their friend down to the healer. They couldn't recognize God in the course of the ordinary. Because at the root of entitlement is the death of wonder. So then God shows up in their ordinary lives. And instead of widening their eyes in wonder, they narrow their eyes in suspicion. But it's not only the Pharisees. I mean, the same thing happens to the disciples too. It happens to us. At the very end of Luke's gospel, the resurrected Jesus appears to a couple disciples who are walking on the road to Emmaus. Now for these two, wonder has died and fear has grown bigger than promise. So they're walking to another village. They're going somewhere that they can start over, somewhere distant from the failed promises and big fears that are now stinging at them so acutely. And Jesus walks beside them. He walks with them and talks with them the whole day, and they never recognize him. And then at the end of, of their journey, there's this little throwaway line. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, is this just a charade? Or is Jesus really just going to keep on walking? And I've spent an entire day with two of his disciples. They never recognized who he was and just go on and allow them to miss him. Well, Jesus continually seems content to let people miss him right in their midst if they want to. I mean, remember that time Jesus walked on water? Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. Or, or when he restored Peter on the beach. 
Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. In fact, John opens his entire gospel with the statement, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Elizabeth Barrett Browning says, the earth is ablaze with the fire of God, but only those who see it take their shoes off. See, this entire theme of missing God right in the present moment, right in the ordinary environments of my everyday life, it just gets us right back where we started. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then God listens as Elijah recounts his story with a lie, with a distortion of reality, a fear-driven distortion of reality woven right into the middle of it. But he doesn't correct the mistake. He does something better. He reveals his presence right in the present moment of Elijah's fear. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. It's that same phrase that's attributed to Jesus later in Mark's gospel as Jesus walks on the water, passing by his disciples in another moment of fear. When fear has grown bigger than promise. God reveals himself the way he always does, where he seems willingly, willing to allow Elijah to miss him if he insists on it. And then look back at our text one last time. I want to read from right there. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. And he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. God who couldn't be found in all the noise and power and spectacle, was heard in the gentlest whisper. What are you doing here, Elijah? And then Elijah tells the same story again, verbatim, word for word, even with the lie woven in. I'm the only one left. He's afraid, and fear has to do with sight. God has shown up in his fear. He stood right next to his fear, right next to his deception to reveal reality. The fear of the Lord, the reason we're instructed repeating the scripture to fear the Lord is because every other fear distorts reality, but the fear of the Lord allows us to see clearly. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came so that I can wake your memory up, so that I can drag your past into your present and then send you into a living future. What are you doing here, Elijah? What brought you here? And then he remembers. He recounts the facts to God, but, but those facts, they're just information stored in his head. And God needs this to get down into Elijah's heart and his emotions and his bones. So he says, don't just tell me the facts. Go back the way you came. Walk past the milestones and the mile markers of the ways that I've shown up in your life. Walk past the altar where I sent down fire. Walk past the mountain where I met you. Walk past where the downpour happened. Go back the way you came so you can remember who I am, remember who you are, and then go into a truer future. So what is God's instruction when we get stuck, when we lose the plot of our own redemption story? when fear has grown bigger than promise, for a moment at least. Go back the way you came. Walk back past the moments in your story 
that will allow you to recover my identity and your identity, and then what happens then, we can perceive him with us in the present moment, even in the place of our fear, at the mouth of the cave, coming to us as gentle as a whisper. So these two disciples, they're walking on the road to Emmaus. They're with Jesus all day. They have no idea that it's Jesus. And Jesus is about to keep going, to tragically just let them miss him right there in their midst. And then they talk him into hanging around for a bite to eat. And finally, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. You see, it was there at gratitude, prayer in the evening that they recognized Jesus. And suddenly the path that they had walked with him all day was lit up with God's presence that they had missed all along the way. And they're brought so alive by the wonder of it all as their eyes are finally opened that they don't just stay there at the table. They retrace every step all the way back to Jerusalem, picking up these moments with God that were littered into the ordinary events of their ordinary lives until they get back to Jerusalem to tell everyone else about the God who's come this close. So this week's practice is to continue living the Bridgetown Daily Prayer Rhythm. Morning, pray the Lord's Prayer. At midday, pray for the lost. But in the evening, let's begin to pray gratitude. Let's begin to pick up the pieces of his presence with us all throughout the day until we begin to recognize his presence, building a future on promise and knowing his presence right in the midst of the ordinary moment. It's what the saints have called friendship with Jesus or practicing the presence of God. So here's where I'd suggest you start. Just pick a time, and I would honestly suggest just repurposing some type of ritual that already exists in your evening. Like, take your commute home, and instead of popping in earbuds or turning on the car stereo, just use that time for prayer. Or, or give the first minute after your head hits the pillow to pray in gratitude just before you crack open that novel. Or make this the family ritual around the dinner table and do it together as you open the meal in prayer. Just pick a time and review the day with God. Walk back down the path of the day's events saying everywhere you possibly can, Dainu, Dainu, Dainu. It would have been enough. But thank you, God, for overdoing it. Now, as a reminder, we've partnered with 24-7 Prayer to create the Inner Room app, which walks you through the rhythms of gratitude prayer and the movements of your everyday <clears throat> in both written and audio format. And personally, I find this resource most helpful in the evening when my mind is tired and weary, and it's hard for me to guide myself through movements of prayer. So check that out if you'd find that helpful as well. And of course, to deepen this daily prayer rhythm that we're living individually, we're practicing gratitude prayer in our Bridgetown communities this week, because the longer the race, the more important community becomes. And at the close of all of his letters, offering guidance on this way of prayer, Frank Laubach writes this, the results of this prayer rhythm begin to show clearly in a month. They grow rich after six months and glorious after 10 years. In other words, this is a long race, but it's worth it. And so we need to go alone and we need to go together. So pray alone through the daily prayer rhythm and the inner room app and pray together through prayer hubs and in your Bridgetown communities this week. I'll close back at that ice skating rink in Central Park, December 2020. Mariah's singing her heart out. Hank's laughing hysterically. Simon's waving at me from the arms of a stranger and I'm weeping tears of joy because this moment was holy. 
the presence of God made available in a common place at a common time, I discovered paradise. The paradise of Paul in the prison cell and John on Patmos, the paradise of Jesus on the mountain and among the crowds, the paradise that came and found Elijah in a cave in the wilderness. That paradise, some bit of it anyway, at an ice rink in Central Park in a pandemic. Because when we can see, we then make the greatest of discoveries that God is present and available, as present and available, on a chaotic afternoon in Central Park when everything has gone wrong, as he is when the keys are playing underneath the closing moments of the best sermon I've ever heard in my life. When we pray gratitude, we cultivate this habit of interruptibility with God that then joyously intrudes on our ordinary lives with his generous presence in all the places we didn't know he'd be, but are delighted to find him. Evening prayers of gratitude. That's where we learn to notice him. It's where we learn to see.